Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest this week is Vashnavi Sundar. She's an Indian filmmaker and uh, her production company is called Lime Soda Films. Her most recent series is called Dysphoric. Uh, it's about why women are choosing to identify as trans, not just in India, but across the world. We spoke about um, transgenderism in India, the, the social role of the hijra traditionally, the importance of homophobia in understanding this phenomenon, and why so many Indian feminists are embracing Western gender ideology. As always, you can find the extended version of this episode at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, as well as bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. Vashnavi, I wanted to start by talking about the response that your work has had, particularly your most recent documentary series on detransitioners. The response that you've had uh, in India from other Indian feminists, am I right that the response hasn't always been very positive? Actually, uh, the detransitioners film happened after my cancellation, quote unquote cancellation, um, because okay, I, okay. Made, I made a documentary on uh, workplace sexual harassment that women face in India. Uh, not necessarily in just a corporate setting, but it was a very diverse kind of a documentary, which includes even the um, unorganized sector, domestic workers, construction laborers, manual scavengers, the whole gamut of uh, uh, female employability uh, opportunities that females have and the kind of harassment that women face in India. So I made a documentary about it and it was called, But What Was She Wearing? I uh, was due to screen that in New York some point in 20, just before COVID, I can't remember exactly when. And uh, somebody scrolled up and down my private personal Twitter and decided that I'm a horrible person, a Nazi, a fascist, a bigot, and decided to scrap the screening. And it's funny because the organization that arranged for the, the, the proposed screening calls itself a grassroots organization and claims to be for women of the unorganized sector and so on and so forth. And they decided that they don't want to screen that one film that is on this subject. It's literally the only film in all of India that talks about this issue. They decided they want to cancel it because I personally hold an opinion that single sex spaces are very important for women and that men shouldn't participate in women's sports, etc. So that happened. And then the reaction for that interested me about how India is also taking part in this whole gender identity ideology game where I'm, I was receiving similar trolling, similar, um, what do you call it, backlashes and vitriol online that made me wonder if it is akin to some of the things that women in the West experience uh, you know, so many cancelled women in the UK, for example, receive these, this sort of endless amount of trolls and replies to anything that they post on Twitter. So the reaction that I was getting was also very similar in India. And that made me really wonder if gender identity has indeed infiltrated India in, in, in a way that we can't redeem ourselves anymore. And I started exploring that idea, that thought, and I decided to make a documentary. And it was a perfect timing because it was during COVID. I locked myself up inside the house, not like I had a choice to go out. I uh, sat about one and a half years, I think so, and I made this documentary. And while it explores the phenomenon globally, I have included a small portion of it in India. Since the time I made Dysphoric to now, a lot has changed. A lot of developments, but not good developments that have happened since that time. Talk to me more about how um, gender ideology has been received in India, because it's a completely different cultural context, right? And it, to me, it seems both simultaneously surprising and maybe not surprising um, that some Indian feminists would have embraced what is, what I would say is really a very Western ideology. But then I wonder if, I, I don't know, would you, would you, would you characterize it like that as well? But there are two ways of looking at it. One is, you know, the social cultural phenomenon of hijras and the, you know, the cultural third gender as they used to be called at that at one point in time. Uh, they have existed for a long time and they have existed in uh, so many different uh, mythology. They have existed in cultures which are very religious in nature, 
where there are men castrated males who are kept as a, uh, a sort of a safeguarding mechanism for you know uh, a quarters that posi- that has a lot of females and they ca- they are castrated men because they can be used as a safety net for women and at the same time they will not pose a threat to the males of the kingdom for example or or, or a community or whatever that has always been there and the reason why these men are castrated i mean they 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 are a podcast in itself you know those reasons are a podcast in itself the reasons why these men pursue this um some of them are forced into it due to poverty and due to probably being a feminine in nature and family basically just gives them up to the hijra community saying that he is one of yours so just take him away and the hijra community has always been very forthcoming in recruiting a lot of these boys into their uh into their community so to speak i wanted to just to to go back to this this hijra community because i think some people will be surprised to hear um well I hoping most listeners will be familiar with hijra in general, the idea of a sort of third gender um, of feminine males. The thing that might be surprising, which doesn't really have an obvious analogue in the West, is this idea of a community and of a special social role. Could you talk a little bit more about that to, to anyone who isn't familiar? Hijra, the term hijra itself is an umbrella term, actually, because as you know, we are 1.4 billion people and we have so many different states, so many different districts. And therefore, so many different languages and dialects, and each state has its own unique culture and language and food and other uh, things that are unique to that state. Similarly, we have these communities of feminine presenting males in every state, and in each state, they go by different names. Now, within the Hijra community, there are some men who are called Kotis who live their life in a way that they have family, they have children, they have a wife, they get married knowingly. Uh, Sometimes even the wife is fully aware about his double life. And he has this other life where he dresses himself up in a sari, probably prostitutes himself or not, but just cross dresses and has this uh, life outside of his family home and children and other things. So these are men that are not necessarily castrated in the sense that they are intact males who just perform this cross-dressing interest on the side. Now, they have existed for a long time. And then there are these hijras who go through this sort of a ritual-like ceremony where another hijra, slightly senior hijra, performs this uh, induction into the community where they castrate him and he is left there for the blood to just drain because they believe that the drain that the blood that is draining out is the manhood that's leaving the body and what happens afterwards what remains afterwards is the female and therefore after this induction ceremony they start wearing saris they start presenting feminine and they perform all this stereotypical uh, you know hypersexualized um, presentation in general and then they go out and then they 99% of them solicit and prostitute themselves through the night. Um, now, in India, holding a brothel is the only thing that's illegal. So you can do sex work, so to speak, legally. So a majority of all these males, you can see them on the road just walking about and soliciting males. And uh, this is this is how they make their living. And apart from that, they seek arms. Now, this is... The other community where they go through this process where they believe at the end of this whole draining of male blood, what is remaining is sort of a experience that they claim to be something similar to menstruation, that they have now truly become female. Now, these are all stories that you know from, you know, many, many years ago. They have been written in anthropological books and they have been written in uh, history books. They... They are glorified for this behavior, for this experience that these men have. Uh, but there is nothing that is critical about their, uh, just just the way they take away some male child from a poor family and forcefully castrate them, for example. There is nothing critical about how they feel entitled to be in female-only spaces sometimes, how they feel entitled to take money from any passerby's because 
because they consider to be good luck you see in in indian culture they consider to be good luck and if you um if you don't give them money they swear at you they sometimes flash at you so all of this obviously the west doesn't know because it's looked at as this some sort of a weird cultural thing with filled with colors and all of that nonsense that is very stereotypical of india in general anything relevant to india you often consider that to be you know very colorful and very beautiful and all of that but it's absolutely not beautiful or charming at all so these men some of them could be gay because the concept of being gay is not fully understood or accepted in indian society and you can imagine we are 70% rural uh, 70% of india is rural so a large majority of men that uh, seek to become hijra live in rural areas where they don't have any idols to look up to who's also gay who is who's fallen in love with another man for example so in their minds if you like men then that means you have to be a woman so they start presenting themselves this way obviously it's not so simple for them to just be considered female and it's not like men are suddenly going to line up and uh, seek them to date or to marry or anything like that so they live a very lonely very sad kind of life but that's been taken out of proportion by the west and glorified and somehow the whole hijra community similar to you know many other uh, cultures in um, fafafine for example all of these are considered to be something so extraordinary that uh, the west has taken this up as sometimes the only argument uh, in favor of transgenderism existing for many many years and somehow they justify that by i mean they justify giving puberty blockers to children by drawing some sort of a correlation between the existence of hijras many many years ago this just does not cut it so this is in summary like the community this is how they live this is how they exist this is how they make their living and another really dark uh situation that these men have created is that like i said a large majority of them prostitute themselves right now this has become a huge issue for women who are forced into it or trafficked into it for for them to exit it has now become a huge challenge because the males who are doing sex work right now don't want the industry to disappear don't want the industry to be abolished so they want to constantly keep this up they want to constantly put themselves out for sex work that it makes difficult uh, for the women to exit so there are multiple uh, dangers associated with uh, the transgenderism being in the center of all of it and then there is pornography and then there is infidelity and there is male violence and access to female only spaces so if you take transgenderism at the core of it there are all of these associated problems that sort of really explode uh women's rights situation in india but not a lot of feminist organizations are interested in looking at it in a critical manner because it's just a very touchy subject and nobody wants to be critical about it lest you want to be cancelled what do indian feminists in general think about the status of the hijra are, are, the, are there are there some indian feminists who have Uh, embraced this western idea of um the long standing third gender um i mean that that this is something that i was taught when i was doing anthropology at university about the uh, the existence of hijra and um travesty and other groups like this around the world was sort of evidence for sexual dimorphism being a social construct specifically a western social construct um and at the time age sort of 19 i thought oh, okay yeah <laughs> i'm not along um i now think that's uh, not a very strong argument but it has proved to be quite a persuasive one how did how do indian feminists generally feel about that kind of argument it's really fascinating how this shift happened because trans the hijra community was never considered female you know they were not considered as female sex class they were there and women always cared for that community they always considered them to be marginalized in the sense that the families have completely disowned these boys they have nowhere to go they have to resort to all these really dangerous uh, um uh, i don't know pursuits in order to have a livelihood so women have always been 
women have always had a soft corner for these men, but they've never considered them to be actual literal female, right? So there have been situations where feminist groups have provided them support, tried to help them uh, get some sort of a rehabilitation or provide them with some sort of education so they can be self-sufficient and have a business of their own. Say they have many of them aren't able to go to school or college, so they've tried to provide them with educational. Uh, equip them with some sort of basic education and things like that. So feminists have always, like it is everywhere in the world, feminists have always tried to help marginalized communities all over the country. Now, what we have to take into account is the caste system is is an extremely important factor to consider whenever we talk about the transgender community in India. India, even though it's 2023 and it is unconstitutional to discriminate somebody on the basis of caste, it still exists. If you're born in a certain caste, and if it unfortunately happens to be at the bottom of the pyramid, you live with that experience and you die with that experience, there is no way you can emancipate yourself out of the clutches of the caste system. That's just the reality of it, even in 2023. Now, what has happened is a large majority of these men that are hijacked from their, from taken away from their families or you know, just these men who are gay, probably living in a rural area, also happen to be somewhere at the end of the pyramid. So there is like an overlap of caste politics into the whole transgender politics. So a lot of feminist organization and generally just the anti-caste organizations consider this to be a caste issue, not a female sex class issue. So they fight for the hijra community and the trans community because they believe that they are oppressed on the basis of caste and oppressed on the basis of being trans itself, which I don't think is a category that we need to provide some sort of a unique or special civil rights or anything like that. They already have the civil rights that they are already enjoying as however they are, but there is no need for them to get additional privileges just because they are uh, self-identifying as transgender it does, just does not make sense so because there is a caste element involved a majority of feminist organizations or just any organizations with a social justice mindset right they look at it from a very uh, solid uh, helpful point of view where they believe that trans rights are human rights trans women are women sex work is work there is just no end to this cult chanting then there is no way to get through to them at all in any case, any shape or form, you propose an alternative argument, you are immediately banished. Back when uh, I hadn't spoken about all of these things very openly, very un in an unafraid manner, I used to collaborate with a lot of feminist organizations in my country, in my city, where we would do some, we would collaborate on a particular event or we'd collaborate on a particular cause. We work together and then we would go our separate ways, do our other personal things, me making films and them carrying on with their activism. So we would always come together and then, you know, disband and everything. Nowadays, none of these organizations want to even uh, remotely express even past association because it seems to be a taboo to uh, to have ever worked with me because I am now saying men are not women, trans women are men and uh, females need their own sex segregated safe spaces that is that is the, the irony of the situation and the way indians have just taken this whole thing up uh, is fascinating because we don't have sex segregated spaces to start off with many many rural areas don't have so don't have toilets to begin with women have to walk kilometers into the forest risk snake bites risk other an animal attacks and have to relieve themselves in the morning before the sun is even up because then they are subject to rape and other molestation and other issues. So just, just general shame of wanting to defecate in a public space, right? There are still issues like this left to be considered. And you remember how I talked about the Hijra community in the beginning and how uh, this has been an Indian cultural thing for all this time. What is What I believe is a Western construct is the new wave of the post postmodernist uh, explosion of gender identity. I think that's a Western construct. And what has happened conveniently for Indians is that the existence of hijra has somehow emboldened them 
to believe that they are the front runners or you know some sort of a flag bearers of the trans community itself that they believe that they are some sort of experts uh, which they are not many of them don't even understand what a hijra is many of them don't even want to help a hijra in need to begin with but it is all about uh, the sort of virtue signaling online for social capital right that everybody does beautifully in this country especially the elite educated academia uh, related sort of uh, groups that want to be this face of uh, be the trans savior or something like that and of course you have other males who self identify as trans who are just so loud and um, it's just not possible for anybody to get a word in when somebody like that is speaking so they are the ones that are taking up positions in uh, uh, newspaper editorials in um, uh in in legal jobs in uh, colleges where they are teaching gender studies to students young gullible students some of whom have uh, gone abroad and studied and brought all that garbage over here and are teaching all of that when we have actual pressing issues to talk about and con- be concerned about um so that's like a very unfortunate mishmash of the existing cultural hijra phenomenon and what i consider to be a western import of a neo colonialist western import of gender identity and self identification that sort of come together and has uh, completely destroyed women's rights in india at the moment it so sounds incredibly familiar um, from my experience in western academic spaces yeah i think the thing that uh, people misunderstand when they allied the western idea of gender identity with hijra phenomena and all other comparable phenomena in other parts of the world is that um no one thinks hijra are women like including hijra themselves it's never been assumed that you can directly you know just by going through this castration process which sounds incredibly brutal by the way um that you can just easily transition and and live exactly as a woman it is clearly an expectation that this is something else this is a third category um whereas i think what the the the, the new western idea has a much more is much more individualistic in some ways has a has a has a i think that there's an incredibly strong mind body dualist assumption within the, gen, the the western gender identity doctrine where you have your soul which is where your tr- the seat, the seat of your true gender and then you have your body which is completely separate you know that these are these 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 are unlinked entities and that you can just sort of mix and match them and that your social context doesn't matter and all this i think that is both culturally and historically very novel and to try and apply that idea to 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 the indian context seems mad is it the case that the feminists who are most invested in the virtue signaling that you describe are the ones who are maybe more western focused or maybe being educated in the west do you think there's a correlation between one's kind of how westernized one is and how you regard this issue oh absolutely absolutely the groups that are the loudest will have a large majority of their arguments borrowed from the west a large majority of their research borrowed from the west starting from judith butler um you know you can you can it's it's almost impossible for somebody like me to get a definition out of them that is not circular in nature it's almost impossible i mean it is i can just say it is impossible to get a definition out of them about anything that is not circular in nature and they uh, end up being western educated definitely traveled abroad or have the affluence to have english education in even if they studied even if they have studied in india they've gone to english medium schools and they have had the exposure to read these authors gone to college where there probably is a professor that has traveled abroad and has brought in all of these things basically any exposure to western academic um, pool of knowledge has somehow given them some sort of an entitlement or some sort of a self perceived authority that they are somehow uh an expert on this subject right and unfortunately what has happened is because a large majority of them are studying abroad and are coming here and pursuing jobs in india they end up taking up positions 
like say the media's editorial department or something like that, for example, what they do then is they trickle down their uh, the rubbish that they have piled inside their brain. They pass that on to common people and they write these articles that have got nothing to do with sex, but they use the word cis, even though the article isn't about trans at all. But there's just some sort of a race about who's the most woke, who's the most uh, social justice minded and things like that. Was it the question that you asked where Western mentality is like a strong uh, root behind? Is that is that? Yeah, what I, 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 I think yes. I think you answered it. Yeah, I suspected that the answer would be yes, and <laughs> so it seems. Yeah, yes, but but I should also add that these women or men, whoever, though they have managed to successfully brainwash a large majority of Indians because they now have completely captured media, uh, the law, the criminal justice department, um, your. I don't know, schools, colleges and everything, uh, it has now become a sort of a common place for people to discuss gender identity in India, at least in the urban areas. But to be fair, a large majority of Indians are also completely indifferent to this whole thing. But their motivations could be very different. For example, for me, I'm indifferent to gender identity ideology, but I'm not indifferent to the impact it has on my sex-based rights. Like I am at the forefront fighting for it, demanding that my sex-based rights are not uh, infiltrated upon, right? But for a large majority of Indians, they just don't care. It doesn't affect them. And they are able to do that because they live in the city. They have this education. They have these privileges, etc. But if you really think about it, the way they are pushing this, will affect deeply the most marginalized communities of India, which you can imagine the Dalit community, which is considered to be at the bottom most uh, rung of the caste-based hierarchy. If, they are, if, if there is a woman there, woman there and if she were to um, live a life where she is not burdened by sexual harassment, by sexual abuse by family, sexual abuse by everybody across like vertical and horizontal, why would she want to be a woman right and why would she want to be a dalit woman now what the what the current gender identity um, evangelists have done is they have made it possible for that woman to opt out of that womanhood which i think is cruel because because it's not a bed of roses that they're offering her they are saying that you do all of these things and suddenly you identify as male and all of your oppression will just disappear right away that's the kind of rosy picture that they're painting. And I think it is very cruel and very harmful in the long run because a large majority of women will want to opt out of womanhood. I, I wanted to opt out of womanhood because I was growing up in a very restrictive sort of patriarchal house. I had curfew. My brother didn't have any of those things. And I wished, you know, because my one reference point is I compare myself and I compare a boy and I see that the boy has more privileges and I wish I was a boy. It is just light, plain in front of me, and and I and I can't imagine if gender ident identity ideology had it been there when I was growing up, I would have definitely opted for it. I would have been the first person to knock at a gender clinic and say, "Give me that elective double mastectomy. I want. I w I'm done with this." You know. Thankfully, it was not the case, and now I'm able to see the dangers of it, and I can see the lure behind it, and what these uh, Western influenced feminists or feminist groups or just anybody who have been hijacked by gender ideology, one of the most sinister thing that they have done is given these poor women, poor girls, the promise of a future they have no idea or no control over. And it's they made it seem as if it's a completely reversible process, which it is not. And they have made it seem as if all the oppression, categorical, hierarchical, vertical, doesn't matter. All the oppression, once you identify out of your womanhood, will apparently just like that disappear which is not the case. So women will put put themselves through this entire long process from which there is no return at all. And then she realizes that nothing really has changed. If anything, she is even more miserable. Now she doesn't have the family that she could go back to. Uh, she doesn't have the body that she used to have. And if she's a lesbian, she's probably not going to have the body that her female partner might desire in her. So she's got nowhere to go right now. And it, it, will, will these... Um, rich gender ideology evangelists 
going to support her? No, they are not going to support this poor woman at all. They don't care. They just say that, you know, she hasn't done this right or that it's just an unfortunate one-off or that this is, this is not the case for everybody who pursue this journey. You're being transphobic, you know, things like that. We don't have a high case of uh, detransition yet, but a lot of them have openly said, even in newspaper articles, they have said, if gay marriage was legal, I wouldn't have opted for this because all I want is to be with the person I love. If gay marriage was legal, I wouldn't have to go through this process because according to Hindu Marriage Act, Special Marriage Act, etc., etc., you have to be male and female for you to be considered married. And there is a whole fight going on right now in front of the Supreme Court where advocates are making cases uh, for same-sex marriage to be legalized. Same-sex same-sex relationship only became um, accepted in India in 2018, not very long ago, in, India is supposed to be like one of the biggest democracies of the world. And only in 2018, we have made uh, homosexuality not illegal. And now we're fighting for gay rights. And by this time, uh, thousands of girls have had double uh, mastectomy. Several of them have had hysterectomy, permanently ruined their uh, um future where if they choose to have a baby they cannot have it anymore and if they want to be with a female partner that's not the body that the female partner will probably want and so many uh, ramifications to these things which the gender identity people don't consider whatsoever and by proposing these as a problem i am deemed transphobic and i'm immediately shut up because they think that allowing me to speak this truth is dangerous because some minds might change. Some might see point in my argument. So they don't, they don't want me to talk about it. Are you familiar with um, Blanchard's typology? Um, I'm, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you know this already. I'll just say for, for, for our listen, any listeners who don't, this is Ray Blanchard, sexologist, American sexologist's idea of, of there being different categories of, of, of trans people, different motivations that people might have for transitioning. So I think you mentioned early on the men who sort of are heterosexual and often married and have children, but also cross-dress on the side. This, this is, the, the, Blanchard would say that this is a, the autogynophilic type. This is the sexual fetish category. Um, then you've got the hijra or very effeminate gay men in the West and elsewhere who might transition or, or undergo medical um, interventions for one reason or another. They're a separate category. And then the category I think we're talking about now sounds to me like the, the, the phenomenon you're describing in India is, is, is very, very similar to what we're seeing in places like the UK, the rapid onset gender tra- gender dysphoria, where you have teenage girls, often autistic, often lesbian, often suffering from trauma of different kinds, for instance, from sexual abuse or other kinds of um, uh, sex-based trauma, latching on to this phenomenon. And it's something that you... Um, Describe very well in your in your um, detransitioners series the the sort of the social contagion factor here, and I wasn't aware actually quite how much this had spread already to India. Can you talk a little bit more about the? Again, is this a more Western orientated group? Like, how does this interact with caste? What 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 are the sort what are the sociological phenomena in India associated with the ROGD group? So, yes, definitely there is a rise in the number of, let's just take the example of girls just for the sake of our conversation. There are a number of girls that are opting to uh, socially transition, wanting to change their names, become gender non-conforming, wanting to go to school and be called the he, him pronouns and the whole entire sphere. And this is in the city, in schools that have access to this phenomenon in the first place and also social media right tumblr and twitter and tiktok and all of that tiktok thankfully is banned in india but there are several other social media that make up for it so we have enough reasons why young girls will find it incredibly alluring to want to opt out of womanhood so many reasons um and add to that this constant propaganda where they're trying to teach children that it is okay if you don't feel uh, like you 
like there is like you mentioned the soul and the body if the person inside you is not female then you don't have to worry about it right now because we've got this amazing solution for you and here you go we we you know it's it's there for you you can just take it and there was a 13 year old girl who claimed apparently that she's now a boy and that she's trans and that she wants to transition and slowly when she becomes a major she wants to get surgery and everything and the family obviously freaked out one of them had reached out to me because they had probably seen dysphoric or something like that and i said is she actively on social media and they said yes she's constantly on social media it's just a peer pressure my friend has a cell phone i also need a cell phone and rich parents who are both uh, working and workaholic they end up compromising on these things because they feel guilty for not spending enough time probably um, and they give them a cell phone and they end up being online all the time now this 13 year old the parents took her to a therapist thinking that the therapist might put some sense into her saying you know this is it's all right you're going through puberty right now you're you're exploring there are all these changes that are happening in your body it's perfectly normal at the end of all of this it will all be worth it please can you consider pausing these thoughts just until things are a little bit more clearer for you before we engage in some sort of intervention which could physically or you know psychologically alter it for you instead the therapist said get her a binder that's it and the parents ran from the therapist place took her cell phone away kept give gave her like an hour tops to go through chats or talk with friends or something like that apparently the girl is fine right now she's fine she's no longer talking about suicidal ideation which used to be the case because you know you read about all of these things on ways to get your parents on your side because if you say suicide any parent is going to freak out and any parent will go to any lengths to fulfill those things in order to stop her from feeling that way because you know parents guilt is is something else and i can empathize with that um, but she's fine now and uh, all they had to do was just hit pause but that's not unfortunately the case for many many women or young girls who have opted to socially transition and uh, families have abandoned them because you you're of a certain age say for example 18 or something and they start looking at arranged marriages for you they start seeking these horoscopes of men within the same caste to get you married and things like that it's just a, it's just un, it's never changed so many years after independence so many years of uh, girls education and empowerment this thing has never changed the girl is born she goes through puberty she has her period after a certain age she has to get married and fuck off from the house that's been the routine every every time for every indian family and after a few years of course she has to keep giving birth to a lot of babies there is just this is just like the life cycle of this girl now for a girl for a lesbian who is in a family that thinks this way she thinks that the only solution for her to not marry a man is to become a man herself now she say she runs away from home saves up money works in all kinds of weird shady places saves up enough money to get elective uh, double mastectomy presence socially as a male um there is no end to this journey right now because a lot of these girls who are in all of these facebook public groups some of which are managed to sneak in to just understand what they're doing with no malice in mind they are now talking about which endocrinologist to contact so that they don't ask you a lot of questions and you can go straight away to surgery which surgeon would do this for you etc etc that's the that's the core of the discussion there and invariably all of them uh, almost all of them if not all of them have history of sexual abuse so it's it's clear as day uh, you know the way the the motivations behind uh, all of these explorations that these girls seem to be going through but there is no checkpoint here nobody is able to pause and ask people to just take stock and you know just for a moment hit pause here nobody wants to do that therapists are minting money a lot of them have pronouns in bio themselves are social media influencers themselves you go to them and they are immediately all like you know oh i completely understand what you're going through here take this letter go get your life ruined forever you know that's how it has been for 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 a large majority 
that is the only checkpoint that I can think of, which is good, is that you have to be 18 for you to go through any medical procedure. But hormones, you can get it before. And there is a huge push for puberty blockers, the Lupron drug, with a different name marketed in India. There is a huge push for that chemical um, uh, for India as a market. And I can understand why we're 1.4 billion, world's largest, most populous country. Now they want to use this as a lab rat to see if uh, that there is a profit in this country. Of course, they will have profit because they have managed to hijack a lot of these mines. Yeah, there's just so much that I can say about this. Uh, yeah, this, this, the private medicine factor is a, is such a big driver here, I think. And in a funny sort of way, I actually think that it's one advantage that the UK has relative to many other countries in that because we have socialised healthcare, there are more limits actually placed on what some of these gender clinics can can push on patients. Um, not not true for psychotherapists and so forth, but for, for, the, for the more sort of extreme medical interventions, we have more limits. Whereas actually when there's a profit motive, which there clearly is, and when, as you say, you have a very large pool of sort of new possible clients, 1.4 billion people, um, you can see how you could end up with a sort of runaway train effect. And then you add in social media, you add in um, the, the, the incredibly difficult social position that young lesbian women are in. This, it seems like a perfect storm to me. It is a perfect storm. I was just going to use that very phrase. They're now trying to teach about puberty blockers to primary school children. There was a proposed manual, a training manual for teachers, where they are apparently educating the masses about LGBTQIA plus inclusion, where, I mean, I got my hands on that manual. I went through what, what the whole thing is about. And of course, it's a lot of word salad, circular definitions and absolutely no safeguarding measures whatsoever not a single mention of the term detransition or the dangers or the regrets behind all of these things now the there was a group of people that came up with this booklet apparently one guy one of the authors is a very loud trans rights activist who is trans himself he has posted several pictures of himself naked in many of his social media, but most importantly, in social media platform on Reddit called Indian Sissies, and he calls himself a slut. And he wears these skimpy, hypersexualized, hyperfeminized clothes, and he calls himself a slut. And he is one of the authors of a training manual, which teachers are apparently supposed to uh, learn and then teach the primary school children. Now, if you want to promote puberty blockers, obviously you want to teach it to kids who haven't yet reached puberty. Why else would you even bother to talk about this to say uh, higher high school students? You know, for example. So they there is a very obvious push, and I meant to go back to this point that you had raised just a few moments ago uh, about the organizations that have been completely hijacked. Is the money coming from these places uh, that is making them want to? champion this yes absolutely yes there are a lot of um, there is a lot of money in this gender business let me just say that straight out there is unbelievable amount of money in gender business and why wouldn't any organization want a piece of that you know it's pure economics you you have slogged yourself as a uh, as an organization, tried to do this, tried to do that, you created these projects, whatever. But then now it's like a, a flip of a switch. If you say that you are pro this and that, there is just so much that you can get in terms of resources, in terms of finances and things like that. Now, there are some legal constraints when it comes to getting foreign funds. Uh, because if you're a charity, you need to have certain certification for it to be eligible to get foreign funding. But getting that certification is not that difficult. And a lot of very prominent charities already have that. And a lot of them have completely been hijacked by them because they're getting money from, say, Stonewall. They're getting money from John Hopkins, Gates, Bill, uh, Gates Foundation. Uh, you have um, WPATH, is, WPATH's um, Indian version over here, India, iPath or something like that, where they constantly promote uh, 
events where they talk about trans health and things like that. And not to mention, uh, like, like I said a, a few minutes ago about how a lot of these men end up prostituting themselves. These are mostly males who seek out a male partner while they're prostituting themselves, right? That's their main business clientele. There is a huge HIV market in India as well. So a lot of these gender clinics right now started off as AIDS prevention clinics many years ago. They have all now become gender clinics. They are all now providing facial feminization surgeries, Adam's apple chafing, voice feminization thingies. You know, there are just so many things that are, the, the roster is just so huge. It's like a menu card from a very posh hotel. You, can, you have all of these things and this is the price for all of these things. And there are just so many activists, surgeons and um, practitioners online who are just having their own YouTube channel, giving free advice to anybody and in the end plugging their own service to say that, why didn't you come to me if you're also feeling these things? And in the comment section, you can very clearly see very um, disturbed, very distressed youth, clueless about what they're going through. They want to stand out. They want to feel special. They want to feel included they might end up going to all of these places and they have enough money to um, continue creating more and more gender clinics in different parts of the city. And that just means all of these uh, kids are going to end up knocking the doors of all of these gender clinics, right? Uh, unlike in uh, the US where you could just go to Planned Parenthood after a certain age, we do have some checks, but the rich families can always go abroad and as you can imagine, Thailand is like the biggest market, right? Now, in, a lot of Westerners come to India because India is now considered to be the next Thailand. But a lot of Indians go to Thailand to get their surgeries done. And sometimes mm, they don't even care if they have, um, they are 18. Uh, they can just get it done as long as they're able to pay money. Now, that's kind of becoming a trend over here as well. There, there are so many forums where they're talking about, is it okay to get puberty blockers? Is there some doctor who would give me puberty blockers because I'm feeling so distressed? I'm having gender dysphoria. I mean, I don't think they can even name two different types of spinach yet. And they're already talking about uh, DSM and WPATH and, you know, all of these things. I find that baffling because... When I was that age, I couldn't give a damn about whether, I, I don't know whether the clothes that I'm wearing, is it good enough or, you know what I'm saying? Like when I was a child, I was a child. When I had trouble fitting in, I had no friends. I was a lonely child and introverted. All that aside, I was still a child, a very confused, gullible child, but I was a child and I wasn't really thinking about um, feeling something on the inside and wanting to do something on the outside. But you can see the success of this ideology because you take any random uh, English educated student and you ask them about their pronouns, they will be able to give you an opinion on that. And that will obviously be in sync with the gender ideology, not that they're going to be critical of it at all. There's a push against it. There's a pushback against it. But the motivations behind groups that provide pushback against it is not the same as the feminist pushback because they have religious uh, intentions behind it because they want to continue keeping the wife inside the kitchen so they want they know what a woman is and they want everybody to know her to be the person inside the kitchen so i just wanted to add that to the money being a key role playing a key role in, the, in all of this what do both non-elite and also more conservative Indian people think about this? Because you mentioned earlier that Hijra have this slightly um, this this slightly complex social role where on the one hand, clearly you're talking about young men coming from dirt poor families, you know, in prostitution, living really, really hard lives. Also, the idea that giving money to Hijra is, is lucky in some way. So there's this, you know, there's this, they're not, it's a slightly complex outcast role, whereas then you have, you know, the, the, the rich families who are going overseas to, to medicalize their distress. You, you know, it, it, that, that's clearly a completely different social strata. What's the sort of, what would be the conservative Indian view on this? Is, 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 there, is there deep suspicion of this 
new westernized concepts sort of what's the what I, i'm trying to understand the different sort of political factions at play the conservative india is also homophobic so they will use any excuse to not have a gay child and if uh, this is being provided as an opportunity they might perhaps consider it because they don't want to they want they don't want to be part of a society where others know them as a parent of a, a gay son or a lesbian daughter even today there are honor killings so conservative indians would prefer would prefer a trans child to a gay child generally you would say of the conservative population the homophobic ones definitely will because they don't they can't bear the idea of being part of a, a social setup where they might be looked down upon and if you have a gay child you'll definitely be looked down upon by the others because it's just not i don't know it's not uh, natural according to them and things like that we're still in the stone ages with regards to acceptance of homosexuality as a concept people are still thinking this to be some sort of a um, i i don't even know what adjective to use they think that this is unnatural they think this is uh, deviant or they think that this is just something that child does it to seek revenge from the family you know all all other all all sorts of uh, weird ways in which people come to terms with the fact that they don't want to accept their gay child so that within the conservative com- community uh, politically conservative groups for example if they would rather have a straight child they might support transgender ideology but if you don't care for homosexuality because you are so indoctrinated by your religion that you know that you are not going to be affected by homosexuality then you oppose transgender ideology because everybody knows who a woman is and she is a subservient one in the in the between the two sexes so the motivations behind these groups stems from how personal it is and in what way are they affected by it when it comes to the liberals the cream of the liberals who want to just do armchair activism will keep singing songs in praise of this ideology and say that you know the world has moved on why are you still being such a prude or such being such um, you know i don't know regressive colonialist or something like that um and still further there are liberals who genuinely believe that these people have a uh, have this feeling of being a man on the inside i mean they they genuinely believe this and i would like to think that i mean it took me a journey to get where i am right now i mean i also was somebody who thought that this is a natural experience people apparently go through this or something like that i also thought that but i have also gone through this journey to arrive where i am now and i want to believe that these well minded liberals who just want to support it because they believe that this is a marginalized community i hope they will see the challenges behind blindly supporting something like this and will arrive at some sort of a critical position even if not as opposed as i am right now but somewhere if they are having that critical thought in their head to say can we pause and think about it or talk about it that is not there yet that kind of group is right now limited to a handful of uh, uh, lesbian feminists online who constantly talk about the dangers of it say that sweden has challenged this you know other scandinavian countries have challenged it we've got the um, uh, cas report in the uk so we we are the only ones that are constantly talking about it i have a, my own blog where i constantly keep writing about how it is infiltrating india but otherwise the mainstream media it's just absolute silence if anything they're talking about any small development as some sort of a huge achievement but while at the same time constantly whining about how you can't do enough you know you haven't done enough for this government has to do this that government has to do this you need to give this affirmative action you need to give that affirmative action the thing that really irks me the most is there is no there seems to be no end to how much uh the state or the people or the women for that matter have to do in order for them to be happy in the end because um they want employment affirmative action they want reservations and employment in government jobs apparently 
there is a cut off marks you have to write an exam and things like that there was this one case where uh, uniform uh, uniform service board or something like that it's a group from where you have all of these written exams and based on how you fare you get positions in government offices and things like that now everybody has to attend this exam there is caste based affirmative action which i am fully pro um and then there are these affirmative actions that are for um widows because they want to give them jobs on a compassionate basis so that uh, she doesn't lose that livelihood that her dead husband used to bring trans ideologists said that they are the same as a grieving widow and they have want they have demanded that the cut off be lowered to that of a widow who's grieving the loss of her husband and they have succeeded in it this is just one example that i'm giving you and there are several such examples where they have gone and made such outlandish claims of another completely different marginalized community and making that comparison that they both are the same and therefore they need to they need to have the same affirmative actions when it comes to getting things from the state they have succeeded in putting forth uh, one of the most biggest fights in saying that this is also for us that is also for us somebody who's a war veteran who has uh, retired and uh, is now just doing some sort of a consultation position there is a cut off mark for somebody like that who wants to you know take up a, a a position later on after retiring from the army trans rights activists have said that these these two are the same therefore their cut off also has to go down so this is just couple of examples but they have managed to um sort of put their tentacles out wherever possible and keep grabbing whatever they can find you know that's how it is seeming to me right now but at the same time constantly saying that they 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 are the most marginalized they don't have anything uh, they are being treated in a in a manner that i mean just think about it when you are attending a job interview okay and if somebody were to ask you what your sexual orientation is it would weird you out because it is irrelevant it is immaterial who who with whom i'm having sexual relationships with but right now the corporate agenda is singularly focused on inclusion of trans identified members in corporate workplaces there is stonewall influenced workplace equity and things like that there are gender neutral toilets gender neutral hostels i mean I, it feels as if if this is the end game they have managed to sow all the seeds in the right places now it's just waiting for uh, we we're, we're all just waiting for it to be exploding uh, exploding any minute right now it's it seems like they have managed to position all of these things in the right places and just laying in wait at the moment these trans activists that you describe they surely they are not drawn from the ranks of the kind of low caste hetero that we started the conversation by talking about this this sounds like a much more um a, a group of people with much more political clout than you would expect can you can you tell me more about how it is that they've managed to secure so much political influence if you take my state my state is has always been very liberal has always been very pro affirmative actions has always been against uh, the caste system and generally people in south india are a lot less uh, tolerant of caste based discrimination than it is in the north so when it comes to my state there the provisions that the state has provided in terms of free education or affirmative action to go pursue higher education in colleges and postgraduate degrees and things like that there have been many families that have benefited from it so today there could be a dalit man who self identifies as trans is probably well educated himself and is now becoming the person in the in the front of you know the 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 group and saying i am dalit i am trans listen to me now i would gladly listen to you as a dalit man because caste system needs to go right it it is one of the most obscene forms of oppression that has ever existed in humanity i am definitely dead against the caste system but how is that 
a sort of a, an excuse for you to talk about your self-identification, where you think that your passport should have an F marker because you feel like a female. So when the person who is lobbying for this, if they happen to be of the lower caste, somebody like me absolutely has no chance whatsoever because they will shut me up in terms of me being a woman first me being a, a cis woman a hateful person as it is and two i was born in a family uh, that is of the oppressing caste historically oppressing caste so i have all the privileges of being that from that caste because no matter how much you say that you are against it you don't believe in it the privileges that you reap you, you get it even without trying like if i walk into a room i know 10 people will just you know allow me a chair or you know ask me if everything's okay like that's just something that you can take for granted and if you are privileged you don't don't, don't even realize that these people do that for you until it doesn't happen for you someplace so so there is so many privileges of being born in an upper caste so they think that being born in an upper caste makes me uh, not suited to talk about something like this to a dalit man who is self-identifying as female you see how many blockages that they create where in the name of caste you can't talk in the name of race you can't talk in the name of being female you can't talk because you're not including males in your category so while a large majority of them are still from the rural background or marginalized or have no rights or probably many of them just kill themselves sometimes you know because they don't want to live a life where they will be married to a man and they the conversion therapy where a lesbian woman is put through this uh, corrective rape is still very much a reality in india in 2023 family members rape lesbian women it happens all the time in rural areas several of them just kill themselves that being the case if you provide them with this opportunity they're just going to take it right so the persons who are talking about it the persons who are loudest many of them are uh, from the upper caste themselves or you know they have the influence they have the affluence they can get their word out and it is also very helpful that the media is constantly wanting these stories constantly seeking any activity that is happening in, in that city so that they can talk about it in a glorified manner so for them to reach the reach a large majority of people is very easy compared to somebody like me i have to literally beg somebody to watch this for i can write even a bad review about it i won't get any reply from anybody even those journalists who used to be my friends they are not responding to me at all some of them have blocked me on whatsapp for example so all of them who are at the forefront of it are all males self identifying as females and all of them are very clear that they want a, a long list of things that need to be done by the state and no matter how much of those uh, endless list things get fulfilled they're constantly talking about how they are marginalized how they are you know none of them are talking about exit options for these men you know if prostitution is what they're doing and if they don't want to do that nobody's talking about exit options for them nobody's talking about self sufficiency of course there are many groups that uh, help these women to create a small business or something many have this catering business many have this embroidery business and things like that but it is still a mockery of female because they are constantly presenting as female they want access to female only spaces and things like that so it's a mixed bag of people that are at the forefront of it some have the voice because they are from a certain caste and we are in the social justice world where you know when somebody from a certain community speaks others are expected to just be quiet and listen in an ideal world that's perfectly fine but they are using caste as a way to infiltrate into this transgender ideology where they're trying to sorry they're trying to infiltrate into female spaces using the transgender ideology which i think is a big problem in a in a room where there are say caste oppressed communities that are talking about their challenges and everything i would be the last person to ever open and say, open my mouth and say a word but if you are going to use your caste oppression to say that you are a female and that you need all of these privileges i will be the first to oppose that but that does not make me uh, a casteist person that just makes me 
a person who is safeguarding female sex segregated spaces. But this nuance is just forgotten, is easily drowned and made ambiguous because they don't want that nuance, you see. They don't care if I'm anti-caste or not. They just want to say that here is this Brahmin woman who is not letting a Dalit trans woman speak. That's the end uh, result. And the consequence, it sounds like, of so much of this agitating is actually that it's Dalit women who lose out, losing access to self-sex-segregated spaces to the extent that they exist. I mean, you, you talked already about the fact that just having single-sex toilet facilities in many rural areas is impossible um, and the risk of sexual violence that women suffer and so on. You know, these are the women who actually, it seems, are really losing from all of this political conflict. And isn't it ironic that they don't care about it? And if I speak for those of my sisters who are from caste oppressed communities, that makes me somehow a bigot. You know, it's like an opportunity for them to shut you up. And all of these are just reasons that they have against you to shut you up. I could just as well be Dalit. And if I speak about this, it's not like they're going to listen to me now. They, they have decided that they don't want to listen to me. And all of these other things that they're making me uh, that they're asking me to keep quiet up with are just excuses. You are upper caste. You don't know what you're talking about. You are a cis female. You don't know what you're talking about. All of these are just excuses. Why don't you just let me say what I want to say? And I'm telling you, and probably only a few people that are telling you, that the very women that you claim to want to support are the ones that are going to be most affected by this ideology. Why don't you open your eyes and see it? And that makes me a bigot. This is one of the most baffling times to be alive. What a great note to end on. Um, let's, uh, I'm going to bring this bit of the, the, the free part of the episode to a close. And then after a little break, I want to ask you a little bit more about your own biography and what kind of drew you to feminism and filmmaking and this issue in particular. Um, for everyone else who's watching at home, where can people find more of your work? So the films that I make, I make under my production company by that goes by the name Lime Soda Films. So LimesodaFilms.com has all my films. And uh, if you look me up by Shax, is my social media uh, across all social media platforms. If you look me up, a canceled Indian filmmaker or something, I just show up. You know, it's very easy to find me online because there are very few of us who have been canceled in India. So um Anything uh, that I do right now is very publicly available. And that's one of my goals as well to make all of these things accessible. Because when you're talking about a burning issue, you want people to watch it now. So I, I try and make it available now. I, you know, that's I at least I, I endeavor to make it available now. So anything, um, any search online that says India feminist filmmaker cancelled will lead people up to me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rashmi.